So let's take some time now to uh, look at God's Word. And to do that, we're going to be talking about the book of Romans. But before I do that, I want to tell you a story about a place I read about uh, a couple months ago. I read about a place uh, called Pittsburgh, Kansas. So not the Pittsburgh that we know at the other end of our state. This is Pittsburgh, Kansas. And Pittsburgh, Kansas is known for what they call the fried chicken war. There are two restaurants in Pittsburgh, Kansas that are 300 feet apart from each other that have been serving fried chicken for over 80 years next to each other. It's in a fierce rivalry between Chicken Annie's and Chicken Mary's. Again, just 300 feet apart. Chicken Annie's is run by the Pickler family, has since their founding, and Chicken Mary's is run by the Zerngast family, and it has since the beginning. Now, they serve fried chicken, and in order to make fried chicken, you have the same ingredients and the same seasoning. There's not a whole lot you can change up with fried chicken, just the amount of seasoning you use. But the locals in town swear there's a difference, and every person who lives in Pittsburgh, Kansas, can tell you whether they prefer Chicken Annie's or Chicken Mary's. And this rivalry has gotten so fierce that the families have gotten involved, the Pickler, Zerngast family. Uh, Donna Zerngast, who was a granddaughter of the woman who started Chicken Mary's, said that she was told to do not turn your back on a pickler because you can't trust them. This is the rivalry, the disagreement going on in Pittsburgh, Kansas over fried chicken. And that's a somewhat silly dispute, but if we look at the world around us, we see there's a lot more serious disagreements, whether it's how to respond to this virus, what's the right thing to do whether it's issues about uh, racial justice and law enforcement, the right way to respond, or, or politics, what's the best way for the country to go. And it feels like you have to take a side on every issue. And if you listen to people talking, one side is always right and one side is always wrong, unless you're talking to someone on the other side and then it's flipped. But Christians are to handle things differently. Christians should be able to get along. And that's what we're going to talk about today in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. If you're not already there, I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. You can bring it up on a little Bible app if you'd like as well. We'll also put the scripture up on the screen. And I'd ask you to please stand if you're here in the sanctuary. If you want to stand at home, that's wonderful, but I will not be expecting you to do that, nor will I be checking. But if you're willing to stand to honor God's word, uh, I'll be reading Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the joy of 
being back in church with brothers and sisters. Thank you for the joy of being able to worship you even when we're apart. Lord, as we look at your word, help us to to see you and see your desire that we would bear with one another, please one another, build up each other. Help us to follow your example set by your son who died for us, who took our sin, took our reproach. And God, I pray that you would lead us to live in harmony with brothers and sisters in Christ so that your church, that we may honor you in all that we say and do. May you receive the glory of this time together and every time that your church and this church meets. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, these seven verses don't just show up here. This is the book of Romans. And when you read the Bible, it's these, often these longer letters or books. And they didn't have these big chapter numbers or verse numbers that we see now. So this is actually a discussion that Paul starts back in chapter 14. It continues into chapter 15. So if we're going to understand what's happening, we first have to think about the background from chapter 14. Paul's writing to Christians in the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire. He had never been there himself when he wrote this. Uh, He would later, but he still knew some of the people there, and he's explaining to them how he understands the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and what the implications are of that, what that means for the people in the city of Rome. And so we're toward the end of the book, and he's in the real practical part of his letter. And the problem, the issue he's addressing with the Romans is an issue related to meat, to meat. And it seems it was probably in relation to a difference between Jews and Gentiles. In uh, the way the Jews practiced their faith at this time, there were a lot of food laws, feast days, they uh, set aside a day of the Sabbath to rest, they had a strong distinction between clean and unclean foods. And if a Jew wasn't living in the land of Israel, then there was a greater danger that the food that he was around would be unclean. It wouldn't have been properly purified, or it may have even been sacrificed to an idol. And so for that reason, a Jew not living in Israel was more likely to only eat vegetables, to avoid eating meat. And when some of these Jews in Rome became Christians, they did the same thing. They'd done it for their whole lives. They thought God wanted them to be pure in what they ate, so they didn't eat meat. But in the church in Rome, there were also Gentiles who had not been raised as Jews, and they didn't have the same conviction, so they did eat meat. And the problem seems to be that those with the higher food standard were looking down on the others and vice versa. A Jewish Christian might say, well, if you really loved Jesus, Gentile, you wouldn't eat meat because I don't because I love God. To which the Gentile would reply, well, if you really loved Jesus, Jew, you would eat meat. And I'm sure it went back and forth all the time. Paul's point here is this is a non-essential issue. Whether or not you eat meat doesn't determine if you're saved. It doesn't determine your relationship with God. And it shouldn't affect uh, church body, church membership. So he gives a solution, and I'm going to walk through just a couple of verses in chapter 14 that kind of present some principles he has about how to solve this problem, and then in chapter 15, he really hits the application. So in verse 1, he tells them to welcome the weak. He says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. He says, welcome the weak, welcome those you disagree with. Do not enter into needless quarrels with them. Do not critique someone else's convictions about a non-essential. In verses 2 through 4, he goes on. He says, One person believes he may eat anything, 
while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So here he encourages them, do not pass judgment. He's reminding them God doesn't accept us on the basis of what we do. We're accepted if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's kind of conveying to them, do not feel, do not act superior because you think you are right. He's saying God will be the judge of your brothers and sisters. But he's not telling them they shouldn't have an opinion. In verses 5 and 6, he says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems thinks of all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Each one should be fully convinced. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, he's telling them, you should be convinced of your view on whatever issue. Be convinced before God. The Jewish Christians he was writing to, he talks about a day. This is probably a reference to Sabbath. They rested on the Sabbath on Saturday, and they did not eat certain foods, certain meat, but the Gentiles did not have those convictions. Paul's saying each should follow his or her own conscience and conviction. Later, Paul will say he sides with who he calls the strong. He thinks it's okay to eat meat, but what's more important to him is that they live to honor the Lord. With whatever they eat or whatever practice they have, they should live to honor the Lord. Because, he says in verses 10 and 12, that God will be the one who judges. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He says in 12, then each of us will give an account of himself, of herself, to God. Now, if we have faith in Christ, if we're believers in him, we know that salvation is not based on something we do, that we're not being judged whether or not we're going to heaven or hell based on how good or how bad we've been. But still, if we know God, if we've been saved by Christ, we will be held accountable for our works. We will be held, we'll have to give an account, tell God why we did what we did, and we'll receive a reward based on what honors him. So what we do matters. We will have to explain our decisions to God. But even still, in verses 13 and 15, he tells us, do not cause others to stumble. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He's saying, do not cause others to stumble. If you think something is a sin, that something is wrong, then you shouldn't do it. Whether or not that that's ultimately right, if you think it's wrong, then, then avoid that. And on the other hand, if you're blatantly pursuing something that you know other people think is wrong, and that causes others to stumble, then you are causing them to sin. So you shouldn't destroy God's work. Verses 20 and 21, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. He's saying, do not destroy God's work. Do not damage somebody's spiritual walk, their relationship with Christ, just because you're doing something you want to do. Having an attitude of, I want things to be this way. I want church. I want my life to be this way. It helps me. It's what I want. That's an attitude that Paul is warning against here. And he finally hits the main positive application in chapter 15. In verses 1 and 2, he tells the Christians in Rome to bear with, please, and build up others. As he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Now, as we've already seen, when he talks about the strong here, he's talking about those specifically who ate whatever they wanted and didn't think there was a difference between one day or another. But he's saying they still have a responsibility to support, tolerate those they disagree with, talking in their church family. He says this is an obligation. This is something we ought to do. We must be considerate of others. Paul will write in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. This is telling us that in the church we must accommodate brothers and sisters with different views on non-essential issues. And this is a word, a phrase, a concept I think we understand. I'm sure we're all tired of hearing about essential versus non-essential workers and, and who's supposed to work, who is not. But we still understand the idea that there's some people who they absolutely cannot stop doing something or else society would stop to function. Well, the same way, there are issues, there are things God talks about or understandings we have. Some are essential. We will not have the church. We will not have a proper understanding of God if we don't get this right. And there's other things that, not saying they're not important, but they're not necessary to uphold the church and uphold who God is. It's the difference between an eternal principle and interpretation or a personal preference. Now, we should defend key truths in God's Word. So it's important for us to know what is essential, what is non-essential. I'd say what is non-essential is what God's Word has not specifically or clearly spoken on non-essential be what God's Word is not specifically or clearly spoken on. At our church, we use a statement of faith called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. It just takes some things of Scripture and puts principles that here for our church, these are things we consider to be essential. Among them, and if we're thinking about our relationship to other Christians, views like who God is, the Trinity, Christ, that He's fully God and fully man, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, that the gospel is we don't earn our salvation, Christ earned it for us, we would say those are essential in determining who knows God. Now, figuring out this difference between what's essential and non-essential, that, that takes a lot of wisdom, because we should defend what is essential, but we need to have grace for non-essentials. And each of us struggles in different ways of how to do this. I think we each have a tendency to either think that everything we believe is essential or that nothing we believe is essential. 
And if we know ourselves well, we can see which way we may be swerving. And that may happen at different times in our lives. We may be more, oh, we have to be black and white, and then we may slip more into, well, everything's gray. And either of those extremes run us into trouble. Because Paul says at the end of verse 1 that we are not to please ourselves. Our desires, our thoughts must come second to supporting, encouraging, and caring for others. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to another church that's having the same issue about whether or not to eat meat. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. It seems that on non-essentials, Paul held his convictions with an open hand. He was willing to lay aside his beliefs, convictions about non-essential things for the good of the church and for concern for others. That doesn't mean he stopped believing the truth. It doesn't mean he had a perspective or an opinion on it, but he picked his battles. He'll then say in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians said to him, well, all things are lawful. We can eat meat if we want to. And Paul says, yes, but not all things are helpful. They said, well, all things are lawful. Yes, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Paul did not think it was necessary for him to win every argument, and neither should we. He focused on what would help others, not on winning, not on making himself look good. And Christian leaders throughout church history have reckoned this, recognized this. The Protestant reformer John Calvin said, the stronger anyone is in Christ, the more bound he is to bear with the weak. If you are strong, you should be more willing to make changes to accommodate the weak, accommodate someone else. You should think, will me fighting with this person, arguing with this person about this issue, will this build them up? Will this encourage them? And if it won't, then maybe we shouldn't argue about it. I'm not saying we should never disagree or never express our opinion. I'm not saying that at all. But there's a difference between expressing a concern out of love for someone and arguing with someone because you must get your own way. Now, we may look at this, okay, we can see with this issue of meat, who's the strong person, who's the weak person. But how does that fit with the issues we have today? Who's strong? Who's weak in this? I think in most issues it really doesn't matter because the point is that we're to bear with, support, help, love others. Now, if it is super important to you that you think of yourself as the strong one in an argument, then then fine, by all means, go ahead. But I think it says a lot about your pride if you have to always think of yourself as the mature one. After all, it's children who insist on getting their own way. For me personally, I find it healthier to acknowledge maybe I'm wrong on this issue. If it's a non-essential, then I will hesitate before throwing thus saith the Lord at it. I will say my understanding of what God says is this, but I acknowledge that I could be wrong on it, and there are Christians who love Jesus who disagree on this point. I may be the weak one, so I should be gracious with my disagreement. Because instead of living for ourselves, we should please our neighbors in Christ. As he says in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We should desire that they would be edified, built up, encouraged in their faith. 
Paul writes about this in some other books. In Philippians, which if you've been watching online, we, I preached through that. Philippians 2.4, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And in the book of Galatians, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Believers in Jesus are burdened. They are concerned for the interest, the cares of others. They are to help one another, build up others. The strong are not just to put up with the weak, they are to be sympathetic, to help them live out their faith. This is not just a New Testament thing, this is in the Old Testament as well. In the book of Leviticus we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And who said this? The Lord did. He says, I am the Lord. That means even people that rub us the wrong way, even people that are draining, we should strive to build up as much as possible. Back in 1 Corinthians 10, there's a very famous verse that we know and we, we love, we often reference as Christians, but we often ignore what comes right after it to justify our own actions. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But then Paul tells us what that means. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul did not think that his life was about enjoying his freedoms. He thought his life was about serving others. The reformer Martin Luther put it this way. He said, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. We are not slaves to sin, to law. God accepts us as we are. But a Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We're not subject to God's laws in terms of our acceptance with him, but we are subject to one another, to encourage, to build up, to care for one another. In the church, on non-essentials, unity is more important than being right or wrong. So what does this look like for our church or for any church? Well, we can take any issue that we have a disagreement on, whether it's silly or serious. If we're talking about sports, I know the truth is that the Philadelphia Eagles are the greatest football team that has ever existed, ever. But if you are, want to be wrong on that, then I won't argue with you. We can be brothers or sisters together. Likewise, I know that the original Star Wars trilogy and Lord of the Rings trilogy are the greatest movies that have ever been made, and there will never be movies that are greater than them that will ever be made. But if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. We can be brothers and sisters. We can serve together. We do not have to argue about it. Now, that's silly, but let's go a bit more serious. Let's talk about politics. Today, politics has become a religion for many people. What you believe about your political system is more important than anything else you believe. Politics divides people all the time out there. It should not divide us in here. I've got some news for you. You may not be aware of this, but among our church membership, there are Republicans, there are Democrats, there are Independents, and there are everything in between. If you remember, we did not ask you to check your political affiliation on your membership application. That was not a question we asked when you joined this church. Politics is important in society, not denying that, but as in terms of our standing before God, it is a non-essential. 
And if you feel more loyalty to a political party or a personality than you do to your brothers and sisters in Christ, then something is wrong, and you need to fix that. How about how the church should function? Well, we sometimes have opinions about how things should be done in the church, what ministries, what events should happen. But the truth is, the church is not about you, and it's not about me either. That doesn't mean our opinions and thoughts don't matter. It does mean the church is about God's mission. And you are welcome to express your disagreements. I would encourage you to not let bitterness build on something. But please understand, just because you disagree with something, that doesn't mean that's something that should change or that will change. And let's talk about the issue of the day, uh, coronavirus and the response to that. You may have a variety of opinions of whether the benefits of social distancing or masks, whether it's real or not, overblown. People are going to have different calculations. They're going to have different strategies. They're going to understand differently what is happening. And we need to respect the fact that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are cautious. We shouldn't criticize them for being fearful because we don't know their hearts. And likewise, some of us need to understand that some of our brothers and sisters in Christ are comfortable and we shouldn't criticize them for being careless. For me, it really doesn't matter who's right at the end or or how it all works out. We'll understand more five, ten years from now than we will now. But in the meantime, I'm going to do what I can to reach all people. It's important to me to keep people safe. It's important to me to not get anyone sick. And if there's a possibility that me wearing a mask and keeping a distance keeps people safe, then that's something I'm going to do. But I'm not going to exclude someone who disagrees with that. You may have a very strong conviction about what is happening, and I am not asking you to change that. All I'm asking you to do is think of others. Whether or not you wear a mask, that doesn't determine your spiritual maturity. And whether or not you feel comfortable coming to church right now, that doesn't determine how spiritually mature you are. What does determine your spiritual maturity is the reasoning behind why you do what you do. Do you make decisions based on what you think is best, or do you make decisions based on what may be best for someone else? That is what determines our maturity. Because Christians should follow the example of Christ. Right after this, Paul gives the ultimate illustration about why we should do this. He just said we're to please our neighbors, build them up, and he says right after that, for Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And he says we see this throughout the Bible, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance, through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Here, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 69, verse 9. He's saying the the reproaches, the insults that we deserved came on Jesus Christ. This is reminding us of the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, we deserved to be separated from the Lord. We deserved eternal punishment, but that didn't come on us, because Jesus lived perfectly, because he died on our behalf. He took those reproaches. He took that punishment. And what that means for us is we should follow that example, model him. Jesus sacrificed his 
self-interest in order he could love, care, suffer, and die for us. And so we shouldn't respond to any insults or criticisms that we receive in kind. We should respond with Christ's grace. He should be our example, our motivation. Now, in our human nature, we may, after we're insulted or slandered, we may need an hour or two to calm down before we take the time to respond with Christ's grace. But that still should be our goal, our motivation. Jesus said this about himself in John's gospel. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him, of God who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He lived sacrificially for his people. Do we live that way? I have to confess, more often than not, I live for my preferences and what I want. I need to be reminded, though, of what God's Word says. And if we spend time in it, we see it really is about Jesus. Verse 4 told us this, the Old Testament, all of the Bible is for our instruction and encouragement. And it's a reminder to us that we might not know the right answer right away. We might not have the right answer on everything all the time. But if we're willing to learn, if we're willing to be teachable, then Scripture can teach us how to persevere in this life with hope. That's what it says, that through the endurance, through the encouragement of Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have trust that God will fulfill His good promises. If we are following Christ, and if we're putting others first, as He did, the call for our church, the call for every true church, is to live in harmony. Verses 5 through 7 say, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you remember the story at the beginning I told you about the fried chicken war in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and how it's the Pickler, the Zerngast family? And I said the one granddaughter of the Zerngast was told all her life that you can't trust a Pickler. Well, there's something I didn't tell you about her. See, she's been married to Anthony Pickler for 54 years now. So she either didn't listen or she discovered that love is the key to living in harmony. And for believers in Christ, there's no greater love than God's love expressed through the work of Christ. And so Paul prays here that the God of endurance, patience, and encouragement would guide believers to live in harmony. He wants them to be of the same mind, to be like-minded, have the same attitude. It's his wish for all of the churches because it's the attitude that Christ has toward us. He chooses, he chose to associate with us. A mindset of harmony is needed for the church to be united. We see this throughout the New Testament. Back in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, this is the same book where he talked about people who had disagreements. So he's not saying we all have to be clones. He's not saying we have to agree on every single issue all the time. He is saying there should be a sense of agreement, a sense of belonging among God's people, no matter what we think 
on non-essentials. As we were preparing to reopen the church a week or two ago, I was reading through a section of Scripture known as the Songs of Ascent. They're psalms in the Old Testament that God's people would sing as they would come up the mountains to the city of Jerusalem to worship. And one of these psalms of ascent is Psalm 133, verse 1, which says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers, brothers and sisters, dwell in unity. And indeed it is. Our passage today is a prayer. It's asking God for this unity, this harmony, because unity in a church is a supernatural gift of God's Holy Spirit. It's something God gives us as we follow Jesus Christ. Paul wrote just before what we read in chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And friends, until we are united, we cannot grow to be the church that God wants us to be. I look at his word and I see things that God could teach us through it, but we're not quite ready to hear it. And that excites me because it means there's opportunities for growth. There's more that God can do with his people. The church is never finished. We're always growing, always reforming. The danger is if we think we have arrived, that's when we're not where we need to be. But if we're living in harmony, if we are of one mind and one accord, then we glorify God together. And a focus on worshiping God, on pleasing him, that leads to unity and harmony. And that's why pleasing ourselves is so damaging, because we're doing the opposite of what God intended. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo said this, corporate worship should involve more than a group of isolated individuals who happen to come under the same roof at the same time of the week. It should be a union of like-minded people, all dedicated to God and to each other. And that's why Paul's conclusion in verse 7 is that, therefore, we should welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We are to accept, receive, welcome one another because we have been accepted, received, and welcomed by Christ. The pastor in New York City, Tim Keller, says it's only as we understand that we are accepted by Christ and we live in response to that, rather than living in order to be accepted by him, that we will accept others. And what he's saying, it's only as we understand that we are accepted in Christ, not by what we do, but through him, that then we can show that grace to others. Because if we think that God's favor on us is based on what we do and how we live, then we will always have a desire to win, to prove ourselves right. If God's goodness is determined by how much he thinks of me, then I always need to be good and I always need to be right. But if it's true that Jesus paid for our sin, then he accepts us no matter what. I don't always have to be right. I can be wrong. I can make mistakes. Not that I'm not seeking to live more like him, but I don't have to be right all the time. I can rely on the one who is, who was right all the time, Jesus Christ. And so if you're always finding fault with someone, and I have a temptation to do that, if you're always finding fault with what someone else is doing, then you might not have a clear understanding of God's grace. We should accept one another as true Christians if we're a part of the same church family. And by living in harmony, we bring glory to God. 
That means more than just putting up with each other. That means we welcome one another with our flaws, our shortcomings, even when we see sin. I'm not saying we ignore it, we brush it aside, but we still welcome the person to be a part of us. Tim Keller says, the way you can tell how much you understand the gospel is to look at how much you love people despite their flaws. In the church, we should treat one another as family. Again, that does not mean we ignore problems, we brush them under the rug. We should work towards solutions together. We see something wrong in someone, we don't criticize them, but we see how can I build up, encourage that person to live more in line with God's truth. As Scripture tells us in Romans 5.8, a verse many of us know, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that verse, that truth, speaks to both Christians and non-Christians. Jesus died so that we might know God's love. Do you know that love of Jesus? Do you know Him, the one who died on your behalf so you could be restored to a right relationship with Him? If you don't know Him, I encourage you to talk to me after the service or, or, or talk to someone who does know Jesus. Talk to them about how you can have a relationship with Him. Be accepted. Know Him, the one who can remove your sin, the one who can make you like God and bring you into a true family. But if you're a Christian, the same fact is true. Jesus died for you, Christian, as well. Not so that you would live for yourself, but that's so you would bear with. Please build up others. He died for you so that you would follow his example, that you would live in harmony with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you, church family here, church family downstairs, and church family watching online, will you commit to do that, to build up others so that they may know Christ?